You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. We will be taking a break from our series in Colossians uh, over the next couple weeks leading up to Christmas and our Christmas Eve service. So make sure you have that on your calendars. Our Christmas Eve service will be on Christmas Eve at 6 p.m. here. And we always have a good time in doing that service as well. So I would like to begin our series on Advent by talking about the weather. (laughs) Some of you just sat up a little straighter. You're like, hey, I know this topic because you talk about it a lot, right? It's interesting to you. Uh, Some of us, maybe it's our primary topic of conversation because it's what we know, we understand, and it's harder to talk about anything else, and that's okay. For some of us, weather plays a big role in our life, in our business, in our hobbies, in our farms. I know it did for me when I was regularly building in construction, especially when I had a project that was not protected from the elements. I was on the weather every night and every morning trying to plan accordingly on how soon I could get it dried in and protected. The rest of you, which is probably the majority, just thought, really, we're going to talk about the weather. I could have stayed home and kept sleeping off this turkey coma I put myself in this last week. But hang in there, and you have my permission. If, because of your turkey coma, you need to start your exercise regime early instead of waiting till January, and you need to get up and do some jumping jacks to stay awake and in there, feel free to. I understand. But actually, talking about the weather... And then actually being able to predict it and what it's going to do are are two very different things, are they not? So we can talk about what it's doing right now with great accuracy. But predicting what it's going to do, well, we all have our own opinions about how that goes, don't we? However, according to skyjinx.gov, it's a website produced by NASA. So, you know, they're pretty smart people. Actually, really smart people and supported by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that's the NOAA, they say a seven-day forecast can accurately accurately predict the weather about 80% of the time. I would have never guessed that. Now, we all know that this is a government website, and so we'll just leave it there. Thank you. They also say that a five-day forecast can accurately predict the weather approximately 90% of the time. Now, I looked in the fine print, and they did not have any exceptions to southwest Missouri, but I think they should. I mean, I think, I think they should have at least an exception for McDonald County, if nowhere else. But however, when you get out to 10 days out on the weather forecast or longer, they're only right about 50% of the time. I know that we have all looked at the weather on our phones or on the TV and then we look outside and it says it's raining right now and it's actually sunny outside or vice versa. I know that we've all done that. But according to NASA and the NOAA, meteorologists are right more often than we give them credit for. 
Well, at least far more often than I give them credit for. I'm not going to speak for you guys. Conspiracy theories set aside, it being government website, okay? However, when it comes to the predictions or prophecies made about the birth of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, centuries before he actually came, the Bible was 100% accurate. 100% accurate. And it wasn't in the little things either. They were not predictions done only a few years before he came. They were not uh, predictions based off of educated guesses and world events and how they're transpiring, how people play the stock market, or how we might say that, hey, in lieu of this coming election, the economy could take a turn or plateau off or go down after this next coming election. Those are good educated guesses that we can kind of plan for and anticipate. And just because I say that would not make me a prophet. This is far beyond that. You see, these predictions, these prophecies predicted that he would be born from a specific family lineage. That he would be born in a specific place. And that he would be born at exactly the right time in history. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at just a few of those. Just a few. Not all. Just a few of those prophecies made about the birth of Jesus Christ. The reason this is so vitally important for us is because it helps solidify the validity of who Jesus was and who he is, as well as what he would end up doing and what he did for all mankind. Thus, placing every man, every woman born since he came on a collision course with him, a collision course that would require us all to have a response to Jesus Christ in one form or fashion. So today's sermon title is called Predicted and Proven. Specifically, that the birth of Jesus Christ was predicted or prophesied about long before he was born in human flesh, and then his birth was proven or confirmed. We will explore this under three headings. The right family, the right place, and the right time. First, he was born from the right family. Born from the right family. See, Scripture not only clearly prophesied which family the Messiah would be born from, but he also, Scripture accurately kept ancestral records as proof. I don't know about you. There's probably, I've seen several ads going on around town and on TV and different things. People wanting to give somebody a gift of being able to prove their ancestral records, of being able to explore that. You see, Scripture very accurately kept these records. In fact, the society as a whole back then did. And we can track it in Scripture. From Adam, the first man, to Noah in Genesis 5, that spanned 1,250 years, just going from Adam to Noah. And then in Genesis 9, 26 to 27, we see that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Kiddos, you remember in some of these characters and stories that you've heard in Scriptures? Adam, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. And then the New Testament even confirms Shem's lineage. Remember, the Old Testament and New separate. New Testament separated by several hundred years, totally different authors, okay? All of these things making it amazing that this happened. So Luke 6.36 confirmed Shem's lineage. And then through the lineage of Shem, about two-thirds of the human, human race was eliminated as possible ancestors for Christ, okay? 
So it went from Adam, and then it spanned out from there, and then narrowed back down to one family, to Noah. And then as it spanned out, started to span out again, it didn't, you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it stayed with Shem. And then from Shem to Abraham, God narrowed it back down to another family, single family, Abraham's family. We see that in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and it was confirmed again in Matthew 1, 1. And then Paul even testifies about this later on in Galatians 3.16. Further proof that this accuracy was true. Paul being different than Matthew. Paul being a scholar himself, having studied it before he followed Christ, would know this information, would have studied it, and then him also reporting it later. So, moving on, after Abraham, there was Isaac and then Jacob. Genesis 26, 3 and 4 accounts for that. Matthew 1 again confirms it. And then from Jacob came the tribe of Judah, narrowing Jacob's line in half. Again, half of the ancestor, possible ancestors narrowed down again. And from Jacob's line to Jesse, Christ's lineage is reduced back to one family again. Genesis 49, 10 and Isaiah 11, 1 both show us this in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Matthew one again confirms it. Then from the house of David in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to Jesus. Confirmed in Matthew 1, 1 and then Luke 1. Jesus Christ was born from the exact right family that was predicted in the Old Testament. You could not do this on purpose. Spanning over 4,000 years. No human could manipulate it. No amount of genealogy experts could ever make this happen. Jesus was not only born from the right family, Jesus was also born in the right place, which is our second heading. Jesus was born in the right place. And now Tony will talk about Bethlehem a little bit more next week. I want to point out that this very tiny little town that Jesus was born in was prophesied about in Micah 5 2. And again confirmed in Matthew chapter 2 in the New Testament. God orchestrating Caesar, a pagan, unbelieving ruler, to order a census to be taken. One had never been done before. It wasn't like we do this every year. One had never been done before. The first of its kind, which would require for Joseph and Mary, the earthly parents of Jesus, to travel to Bethlehem of Judea at exactly the perfect time for Jesus to be born in the flesh there. Pregnant moms, would you hop on a donkey for about a week of travel right at the end of your pregnancy? No. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You're not going to want to get on that donkey. And no husband in his right mind is going to ask his wife to do that and want to live to tell about it later on. Am I right? No. You see, there's no indication in Scripture either that Bethlehem of Judea would have been even a place that Mary would want to ever visit. It is part of Joseph's family lineage. That's where his family came from. Thus, that's why they had to travel there. But there was no indication of like, hey, this is just this awesome vacation spot. It's a great place to have a baby. It's a spa and they do all the new and latest. No. They're having to go because the government says you got to go. Now, I don't think there's anybody in this room that's going to want to have to do that, especially at that season in their life. But Jesus Christ was 
prophesied to be born there. And so God orchestrated for this to happen. He was born from the right family and at the right place, and then Jesus was also born at the right time, our third heading. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 26, predicted that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed after the Messiah had come. The temple in Jerusalem, not just the temple anywhere, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed after the Messiah had come. History, not just scripture, history, secular history, records that that very temple was destroyed in AD 70, about 37 to 40 years after Jesus Christ walked the earth. All of these prophecies and predictions completely fulfilled without human intervention or manipulation. Not only would it be impossible for any human to predict them, let alone manipulate the family, the place and the time Christ was born, it would take an infinitely knowledgeable and infinitely powerful being to orchestrate it. A book entitled Science Speaks, written by Peter Stoner and Robert Newman, set out to calculate the odds of this. If one man in all of history could fulfill just eight of the 60-plus prophecies about Jesus Christ and his coming, just eight of them, And the book is also vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. So it's not just like a couple of Bible scholar students in seminary decided to try to prove this and they got some math nerds to help them out. No, like the actual vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation that they went about this accurately and scientifically. They say this, the probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled seven to eight such prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Those are the chances. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 1 in 100 quadrillion. You have a better chance of winning the lottery. Stoner claims, so to put it in a visual perspective, it's hard to even wrap your mind around that many zeros and that kind of a number, right? So to put that in a visual perspective, okay? Stoner claims that that many silver dollars covering the whole state of Texas, the entire state of Texas, okay? Texas is 268,597 square miles. About four Missouris could fit in Texas, okay? That's how big Texas is if you've never driven across it or in it. So silver dollars covering the whole state, not one layer deep, but two feet deep, covering the whole state of Texas. Silver dollars, okay? You got that in your your mind? Okay, now you put on a blindfold. You're in Dallas. You put on a blindfold and you just start walking in any direction with your blindfold on and you pick up the exact one coin. The first try. Those are the odds. Many of these prophecies would have been impossible for Jesus to deliberately conspire to fulfill. Next to impossible. Such as his descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his birth in Bethlehem, his crucifixion with criminals, piercing of his hands and feet on the cross, the soldiers gambling for his clothes, the piercing of his side, the fact that his bones were not broken at his death, and his burial among 
the rich. Just to name a few. Yet it, each one was perfectly and seamlessly fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Jesus was born from the right family. Family trees and lineages have so many offshoots and branches and roots, it would be impossible to manipulate this over the course of 4,000 years. As hard as royalties try and kingdoms try with their princes and princes and keeping that in line, they still can't do it over 4,000 years. Jesus was born at the right place. Again, no way any woman in her right mind at that stage of her pregnancy, any husband in her right mind would have done that. Traveled in open country on a donkey several days. Some experts saying it could have taken them as little as three days and up to 10 days. Unless they had to. Then to top it all off, Jesus was born at the exact right time in history. God's timing for the first Christmas where Jesus Christ was born in the flesh here on earth was perfect. Not just because it fulfilled the prophecy, but because it was the right time for God to fulfill his purpose, his purpose, his promise to provide a perfect atoning sacrifice for the sins of mankind once and for all. We saw that in Daniel 9.26 and Isaiah 53.11. It says, After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant Jesus will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. And then the New Testament confirms it in Romans 5.6. For while we were still helpless, while the world was still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. Why is all of this so important? Why does it matter that we have this lecture style information overload right here about the prophecy of Jesus Christ this morning? Because Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And what we believe in centers solely and completely and totally on him. Who he was and what he did for us. And if we cannot validate who he was or what he did, We are of all most to be pitied, as Paul says. But we can. In Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy about the coming Messiah in the very beginning of time was made. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection was proven not only by biblical resources, but also can be verified by secular and antagonistic resources as we looked at a couple weeks ago in Colossians. God provided physical and historical evidence for those of us born long after he ascended back into heaven. He has provided this to help us not only believe with our hearts, but also with our minds. He gave us both. And so just a word of caution, if you only believe with your mind, you're missing out on the passion and the love and the overwhelming moments that we can have as we worship our Savior and think and meditate on Him. If we only think and believe in Him with our hearts, well, then we can be swayed with how we feel week in and week out. Some weeks we feel we're really close and some weeks we feel like we're a million miles away. We don't have our mind, the word of His truth, grounding us and keeping us stable. We'll be like a ship without a rudder in the sea being tossed by the winds. 
So God provided that for us, that we can believe not only with our minds, but our hearts as well. So why, why is it that it can be so hard for people to believe in Jesus Christ when there's all this proof? Why is that? Why can there be moments in our lives, even as believers, that we wonder, that we doubt? I mean, his birth was prophesied about hundreds, if not thousands of years before he came. No other person who's ever lived or ever will be lived can be validated the way that Christ was. There is not more proof than any other, for any other human to walk this earth than Jesus Christ. None. And yet, we can still doubt. There's even this unending, unstoppable global phenomenon of the church ever since he came. No matter how hard it's tried to be put down or oppressed or persecuted, it continues to grow and thrive. In fact, the countries where it's most persecuted is where it's thriving the most today. So why is this? I think that the United States Senate chaplain Richard Halverson summarized it well. The fact is, the birth, crucifixion, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ are celebrated worldwide by folk of every race, every language, and color every year. And believing in Jesus, they have been delivered from the most evil, disastrous, frustrating, debilitating habits and life forms possible. The real problem with Jesus Christ is not that folk can't believe in him, but that they won't believe in him. Because of this knowledge, though, because of the historical evidence that's out there, every man and woman that has ever walked the earth must respond to Christ on some level. You, me, everyone. We must respond to him. And whether we choose to respond to him while we still are alive here on earth, we will still respond to him even after our time on earth is done. You see, one response we could have is to choose to deny him altogether. We could choose to deny him. And often the root of that decision is based on our desire to live under the illusion that we are in control. As Kayleen shared earlier, that being in control, part of our nature that she had to deal with in her life can be like slavery and bondage. You see, we, we think we should be in control and need to be in control rather than give up that control. We think we know best. Those who respond this way might believe a Savior is not needed because they are good enough or because there's no point in one because this life is all there is or even think that he lived and he was on earth. They're not going to disagree with that. Probably was a good man, but not the Savior. See, atheists, agnostics, and many other world religions fall into this response. One problem with this response is a person who ignores Christ is also ignoring the historical and scientific evidence proving that he was here. And so if you're going to ignore the one figure in history that has more proof <laughs> and data backing up his existence, what can you believe in? What can you believe in if not for that? 
An even bigger problem with denying Christ is that he will deny us. As he says in Matthew 10, 33, and Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 12. Another response is that we could choose to ignore him. We can believe he was born, lived, died, and rose again, even go to church and sing songs about him. But not fully surrender our heart and lives to him, thus ignoring him on our, in our daily lives. In this response, we think we still are remaining in control, that illusion of control. And in this response, we are not loving him. If we truly love Jesus Christ, we will follow and serve him, as it says in John 14, 15, and 12, 26. I like how pastor and author Sam Albury says it. I've said this before. We cannot follow Jesus while not following Jesus. Let me say it again. I know we have turkey brain this morning. We cannot follow Jesus while not following Jesus. We can't say that we're following Jesus while we're not following him. Another response that we could have to Christ is we could choose to worship him. We could choose to worship him. Only a small portion of worship is through our songs. And while we call our song time here on Sundays our worship time or our praise and worship team and things like that, worship is every part of our life. A definition of worship I like is this. It's a humble and appropriate response to God with every aspect of our lives because of who he is and what he has done. God initiates, we respond with our lives. And see, we worship Christ by adopting the same attitude as Christ did in everything we do, whether it is how we speak, how we work, how we play, how we sing, how committed we are to his bride, the church, how we parent, ouch, how we love our spouse or our children, how we love and serve our community. In other words, responding to Christ in worship should be through every element of our lives. This attitude of Christ I mentioned, what is that? Thanks for asking. Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2 tells us this about Christ's attitude. Starting in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. In other words, something he was going to take advantage of or, or hold over others. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Can you imagine can you imagine the shift in the heavenly realms when the Son of God, an equal and vibrant part of the triune God, the Trinity, completely and totally self-sufficient, not in need of love, not from us, not needing people to worship him to exist and survive and thrive. He doesn't need that. No flaws. When he chose to humble himself and become not just a human, but 
the humblest version of a human, starting as a newborn baby. He didn't come as a full-grown man. He came as a newborn baby with every need and every requirement possible that a human could ever need. Everything dependent upon his earthly parents for. And then Christ, in that same attitude, chose to do all things for God and for his glory by going to the cross as he prayed, sweating tears of blood. Not my will, Lord, but yours. Jesus Christ did everything for God, the Father, as it says in Luke twenty-two forty-two. Did everything for God's glory. And that is the same attitude that we should have and take to humble ourselves to that place of being a servant to all, of doing all things in our lives, every aspect of it for God's glory and for his name's sake, just as Christ. And then continuing in Philippians 2, verse 9, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name So Christ, through his obedience, became highly exalted through serving his heavenly Father. If you want to be great, become the least of these and serve. And verse 10, this is where everybody will respond, whether out of humility and adoration and worship or out of awe and fear. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of God the Father. No other movement in history had a beginning of such minimal and simplistic forms as Christianity and the church, yet has transformed the world the way that it has. See, the world was a very dark place right before his birth. God's people were being oppressed, they were in slavery, they were displaced. There was nothing from a prophet. Micah ended, the book of Micah ended, and there was some 400 years before Christ arrived on the scene. We think it's perilous and dark today, and in some ways it is, but nothing like what God's people were experiencing then. 400 years. And then like as the sun popped through my office window a little while ago while we were praying, all of a sudden, God arrived. So at the beginning of our Advent series, let us remember what this season is truly about. Christmas is about generosity. It is about giving. God gave an infinitely priceless gift. A gift he predicted he would give many centuries before he did. A gift he delivered on, proven by history. The birth of the Son of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Born from the right family, at the right place, at the right time. Jesus Christ, the gift who would make the only payment that could be accepted for the debt of every disobedient choice that has incurred sin. He made that payment once and for all. A debt that's too large for us to ever reduce even by a penny with good choices or good actions. See, Christ made that payment 
to where that debt was completely and 100% absolved. We just need to say yes. We just need to believe in his payment of that death, confessing our sins, admitting our need for a savior, and believing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, is the Messiah, and is our Lord. John 8, 12, Jesus said this about himself, I am the light of the world. How significant must that have meant for those listening to him in that moment? Of 400 years of darkness and oppression. Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That first Christmas was about the gift of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He created us to glorify Him with our lives. No wonder it feels so good when we are generous and give. That is to be like Christ, to give. Why else would God tell us it is more blessed to give than to receive? Because He did and He knows. Let us model giving back to Christ this holiday season. And let us begin our Advent season in remembrance as we celebrate the Lord's Supper here together this morning. We have the elements set up in the four corners of the room. If the guys will leave the lights on bright enough so everybody can get there and make their way. But let me begin our time of getting the elements and reflection and remembrance.